delighted that you're here, and I hope you've got your Bible with you. If not, perhaps there's one in a few close by. I encourage you to turn to the book of Philippians. The church at Philippi was established in Acts chapter 16. Put a marker there at Philippians. That's where we're going to spend our time. But you may want to turn back briefly to the 16th chapter of the book of Acts to see the beginning of the church there when Paul came on his missionary journeys and came to Philippi, beginning at verse 12, there was at the riverside, there was Lydia who was converted. That's all I want us to see at that juncture. And then Paul and Silas were put into prison and uh, the Philippian jailer was converted. And this is the beginning of the church at Philippi. Philippi was in the region of Macedonia, circled here on the mount before you. This is where the church was. This is where the church was established on Paul's missionary journey. This letter was written in prison. That is, Paul is in his first imprisonment, if there is evidence, and I think there is, of a second imprisonment. This would have been his first imprisonment. So this is a prison epistle written from the prison in Rome where he had some freedom, had his own house. That would put the date about 61 to 63 A.D. What was the situation and the circumstance that would have prompted the letter? Well, it seems to be a response to the kindness, as we mentioned this morning, from Philippians 4, where they had sent once and again unto his necessity. That had stopped for a while, and now it's flourishing again. And having received that at the hand of Epaphroditus, then he says, I am thanking you for that gift. It seems to be a response to that, or that's what prompted the circumstance of the letter. But what was the message of the letter? Well, one writer will say that the message of the letter is joy, and it is mentioned throughout the book, and that is a correct analysis of the book. Look at chapter 3 and in verse 1. He said, finally, brethren, rejoice. Verse 3, Rejoice in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. So some have suggested the theme of the book is rejoicing and joy. And that is certainly a portion or a great deal of the theme. But it seems that it's focused more on commitment to Christ. And I see that in chapter 1, I see it in chapter 2, and on through the rest of the book. Commitment to Christ. But is that a contradictory uh, analysis for some to say it's joy or commitment in Christ? It is a joy that comes because of one's commitment to Christ. They fit together as a hand with a glove. So here is the idea of this joy that comes as a result or as a portion of that commitment and that dedication and that devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. The style of the letter seems to be that of a tender letter. It doesn't have the stern rebuke of 1 Corinthians. It doesn't have that that uh, analytical analysis of a false concept like perhaps uh, Romans does nor is it quite the personal thing that you find in 2 Corinthians, but it is a tender style letter. So let's look now at chapter 1, and we're going to focus on verses 3 through 11. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, having given his introductory thoughts in verses 1 to 3, that he's writing to the church at Philippi with bishops and deacons, and then gives his salutation of grace and peace be unto you. Then he begins at verse 3 with his first message. And so what is this message here in verses 3 through 11? This is Paul's prayer for the Philippians. And let's read that prayer. This is not actually the wording of the prayer, but his statement of what he does pray on behalf or for these brethren at Philippi. Let's see what that is all about. Beginning now at verse 3. 
I thank God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he that has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as, as it is right for me to think of this, uh, think this of you, all because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you're all partakers with me of grace. God is my witness how I greatly long for you all with an affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment that you may approve of things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are in Christ, or Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now, there are two things that we see in that prayer concerning the Philippians. There is the thanks that he offers on their behalf. I thank God upon every remembrance of you. And then he talks about what he thanks God for. And then there is a request that he makes on behalf of those brethren found in verses 9 through 11. So let's look and analyze those verses under the banner of seeing good in brethren. That's exactly what Paul saw in the brethren at Philippi. In the church at Philippi, he saw good in them. There's two areas in which he saw good. In this prayer for the Philippians, he saw good in their past, and he also sees good in their future. And those are the two things we want to focus on as we look now at verses 3 through 11. Let's start with verses 3 to 8. Let's talk about seeing good in the past. As he thinks about these brethren at Philippi, in the church at Philippi, he sees good in the past. And because of that, he turns to God and he thanks God for these brethren and for the things they do and the things they stand for and the things that they have accomplished. So let's see what he says in his thanksgiving on their behalf and the good that he sees in their past, which goes into their present. Let's notice at verse 3 and 4, he said, at verse 3, I thank God, thank my God upon every remembrance of you. That is, upon every remembrance of you, I turn and I thank God for you. One has suggested, as the, that the New American Standard perhaps would be a better rendering of that, that is in all my remembrance of you. We've observed from that translation that that simply is noting that Paul's remembrance of them, about them, which he cannot and does not, there's not a remembrance of them, which he cannot and does not give thanks. In other words, every remembrance that he has concerning them, that there is nothing in his remembrance for which he couldn't give thanks. Now you stop and think about what that might imply. There are a number of people that you know, even brethren that you know, that when you have remembrance of their past, there are things for which you couldn't be thankful in fact, you might regret the things that happened in their life. Paul said, the things I know concerning you and the church and those who make up the church at Philippi, there's nothing there in my remembrance of you that I cannot and do not give thanks about. What a blessing that is for him to know that and what a, uh, what a statement that is concerning them. In other words, I'm learning from this that he never prayed for them without giving thanks. Now, there may be occasions where we pray for someone, but we're praying for them to change. We're not praying that we're thankful that they are as they are. We're thankful that they are doing what they're doing. We may be unthankful for what they're doing. And we're praying for their change and for their improvement, and things will get better with them. 
But on this occasion, what he's thankful of, he said, I don't pray to you without giving thanks to God. Every time I think of you and every time I turn to God about you, I'm always giving thanks concerning you. So here's some questions to ponder concerning us. And that is, do we remember brethren with thanks? As you think about maybe the brethren here, or maybe it's brethren in other places where you've worshipped, or brethren that you know in other places, when you remember them, do you stop and give thanks for them? But perhaps closer to home might be this question. And that is, can brethren give thanks as they remember you? Brethren that have known you for years, when they think about you, do they stop and give thanks? And can they give thanks? Is there a reason for them to give thanks? Have they seen the progress that you've made? Do, do they recognize your diligence and your faithfulness? Are you living the kind of life that on every remembrance of you and every time they pray for you, they're giving thanks on your behalf? That's the way the brethren were at Philippi. So he said, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. He saw good in their past. But there's another matter, and that is he's thankful to God for the fellowship that they have one with another. Notice verse 5. For your fellowship, I make, let's back up and get verse 4, always in every prayer making request of you all with joy for the fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So God, uh, Paul was thankful for the fellowship that he has with the brethren at Philippi. Now he's in Roman prison and they're in Philippi, but there is still a fellowship that they have. How so? Well, notice at verse 7 now, he uses another term that is equivalent to the idea of fellowship, that we're all partakers together of the grace of God. I'm paraphrasing verse 7. And so here they are as partakers together, they share together in the grace of God. And so there is that fellowship that they both are participating in the grace of God, they're sharing together in the grace of God, and so he's thankful that we have fellowship with one another. I'm thankful that we both are in the grace of God. We both have received the grace of God, and therefore we share together in that. That's the idea of kanonia, sharing together or fellowship. But perhaps verse 5 and verse 7 are also including in that the fellowship they had in sending support to him. Let's go to chapter 4 and in verse 15. We talked about that this morning and the idea of being content. In that context, he said, now you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me. That word shared is the word for fellowship. And so here they're giving unto him, they're supporting him, they're sending him money, was called fellowship. They were having fellowship with Paul. As we send money to a brother in India, or we send money to a brother in, in uh, the Philippines, or we send to a brother in Knoxville, or we send to a brother here in Tennessee, we're, we're having fellowship with those brethren. And so every time they receive the funds that we, see, we send, we're having fellowship one with another. So I'm thankful that we share together in the grace of God, but I'm also thankful that we have fellowship in that you're supporting me in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But let's go even further. There's something else for which he thinks and sees good in their past and in their present. Every time he remembers them, he thanks God for them. And I'm thankful for the fellowship. I see good. I see fellowship when I think of you. But in verses 6 and 7, he talks about the confidence that he has in them. Being confident of this very thing. Some translations leave out this very thing and being confident, or, or the very thing, and talk about being confident in this. Uh, or, or, or we are being confident in this, that he which begun a good work in you will be able to complete it into the day of Christ. What's he saying? 
Well, if they're going, if, if what has been begun in them is going to continue till the day of Christ, till the coming of the Lord, then that is an affirmation that he, he sees perseverance in their future. And so he's saying, I have confidence in you based upon what I have seen thus far, I see good in you. And thus, based upon what I've seen thus far, I think you will preserve until the end. I think you will persevere to the end. You recognize, every one of us knows somebody that's in the faith that you're not so sure they'll persevere to the end because they're wavering, they're tottering, they're becoming so discouraged, they have threatened to quit and quit serving the Lord, but then they get back in, in the saddle, but then they quit and, and draw back again. You're not so sure they're going to persevere to the end. But that was not the case with Paul in the Philippians. He had every confidence. I'm confident in you that you will persevere to the end. But furthermore, what he's talking about, I think, in verse 5, 6, and 7, is that he, they will continue the fellowship, the evangelistic spirit, that they've had since the beginning of the gospel, as we saw in chapter 4 and in verse 15, just as they have been doing. So notice what he says now at verse 7. Just as, as it is right for me to think of you all, because you have in my heart, I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in defense and con of the gospel. What's he saying? That you have been there helping me in the support and in the and uh, defending the gospel. That is through them, through their support, that they've been able to supply. Paul has been able to defend and confirm the gospel. So while even in prison I'm writing, while in prison I'm preaching, while in prison I'm talking to people about the gospel, I'm defending and confirming the gospel. But you've been partly responsible for that because you supported me in that. Moral support as well as financial support. So I have confidence in you that what God has begun in you, He'll continue on to the end. I'm confident you will per persevere, but I'm also confident you'll continue to have this evangelistic spirit. I don't think you're going to lose your first love. But now at verse 8, still thinking of the good that He sees in their past, and He sees it in their present. He says... Basically, at verse 8, I have a deep and abiding love for you. He said, for God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Let's start with the latter phrase first and come back to the rest. I long for you with the affection of Christ. What does he mean by that? He is so identified with Christ that Christ's love for them is their lo his love for them as well. So I love you with the affection of Christ, as Christ loves you. And because Christ does love you, I'm so identified with Christ that I love you as He loves you. That if He loves you, then I love you too. Now you stop and think about the implication of that. That there ought to be the, the spirit that if, if God loves this person, and let's, let's talk about brethren, and, and it may apply to the world, it would apply to the world as well, but let's talk about brethren though, because that's what's in this context. If God loves this person who is a brother, then I should love them too. If God loves them deeply, then I should love them deeply too. If God cares about them, I should care about them too. So that's Paul's point. I'm so identified with Christ that Christ's love for you is my love for you. But what he's doing is he's expressing the depth of his love. Notice at the beginning of verse 8, God being my witness for how greatly I long for you. I long to be with you. I long to see you. I care deeply about you. It's not that I have a superficial kind of love or a surface kind of love, but there's a deep love that I have and a deep respect for you. That's the kind of love that indeed I have for you. So what good does Paul see in their past? 
He was there when it started. He's heard about the church since, and now he's off in prison. And he looks back and he thinks about this church, and he said, here's the good I see in my brethren. Every time I think about you, I want to pray for you and thank God for you. Every time I pray about you, I'll always include thanksgiving for you. I'm thankful for the fellowship that we have. You have an evangelistic spirit. And furthermore, I have confidence in you you're going to persevere. And I have confidence in you that you'll continue that evangelistic spirit. And I love you with a deep abiding love. But we're not through. Let's begin now at verse 9. Let's talk about seeing good in the future. There may be some people that you can look at and you say, you know what, I see good in their past. But as I think about their future, I don't see much good because they're headed in the wrong direction. They're kind of veering off to the side. And I don't see good in their future. I'm not sure where they're going to go. I'm not sure where they're going to land. That wasn't the case here. He says he sees good in their future. So in addition to the thanksgiving, there is a request that he makes on their behalf. And let's see what his request is. There's two things involved in this request. One is that they would abound. And then he's going to list some things in which they should abound. And then there is the result of that abounding. So what does it mean to abound? The idea of abounding is to grow and increase and have more and more. It's the idea of growth. Even though he's looking back to their past and their present, he sees good in them. Notice there's no tone of rebuke in this context. Later on in chapter 4, we'll see some rebuke about two sisters that couldn't get along. But at this juncture, he's thinking about the good he sees in them. No rebuking found in chapter 1. Not at all. But what he wants them to do, even though there's good, is I want you to grow and increase more and more. Bedag says the word for abound simply means to be more than enough to be left over. And he identifies John 6 and 12 with that word. Well, that's where they fed the 5,000 and there were fragments left over. That's the concept. There's an abundance. So if you are to abound in love, you don't just have a little bit of love, but I'm not sure I've got enough to go around. There, there's, there's love left over. You have an abundance of love. Grow and increase. And if you're bound in knowledge, you don't just, I'll oh, have enough that I can get bound, but you want to abound in knowledge. You'll have some left over. Same thing with, with discernment, as we see in this context. So my prayer for you is, as I look to your future, I want to see you abound in what? Well, first of all, he says, you need to abound, and I hope that you abound in love. Look at verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. What's he saying about love? Love should ever increase. <clears throat> you should love. You may be growing, you may be loving toward your brethren, toward your neighbor, toward your family, even toward God, to the greatest of your capacity, but there's still room for growth as, as you mature. So what I want, he says, is for you to ever increase and grow more and more. But let's understand about this love. This love is not mere, mere excitement or mere emotion. It's not merely stirring up of some warm feeling and mere excitement, but this is a love that is not blind at all. How do I know? This is a love that is guided intelligently by knowledge and discernment. Go back to the wording of verse 9. I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment. So what am I learning from that? I'm learning that this love is not to be misguided. This love just doesn't shoot in all directions. This love is not blind and just does whatever love feels like it ought to do. 
but it's going to be intelligently guided by knowledge and by discernment. We'll see more about that as we go along. Now, let's notice at verse 9, they're to also grow and abound in knowledge. Abound in knowledge, that you may abound still more and more, uh, that, you, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge. Well, the knowledge of the Word comes through a study of the Word. Paul told Timothy, until I come, give attendance unto reading. You need to be reading the Scriptures. You need to be reading the Scriptures and reading the Scriptures and reading the Scriptures and studying the Scriptures. And that's how we gain knowledge, indeed, of the Word. But here's what that knowledge does. Let's tie it back to the love. Knowledge controls and sets boundaries for love. And I cite Romans 10 in verse 2 as an example of that. Let's turn over to Romans 10 and in verse 2. It doesn't talk about love at all. But I'm going to use that as an illustration. <clears throat> there are two subjects that are mentioned in Romans 2, 10 and in verse 2. And one of them is the fire and the other is that which controls the fire. Let's see what they are. Look at verse 2. For I bear them record they have a zeal of God, there's your fire, but not according to knowledge. So what, knowledge, what relationship does knowledge have to zeal in this context? Zeal is great. Zeal is wonderful. Knowledge without zeal is of no value, but zeal without knowledge runs wild and has no control like a fire that doesn't have walls to contain it. So what knowledge does is it controls and, and sets boundaries for zeal. And so let's just talk about zeal for a moment to illustrate, and then we'll come back to love. Here's one who says, I want to be zealous for the Lord, all right? Without knowledge, then he's going to do whatever he wants to do without the boundaries of knowledge. But what knowledge will do will set the boundaries and control that zeal. Keeps the zeal, doesn't tamper it, doesn't put it out. It uses that but channels it in the right direction. Now let's go back to that same principle in Philippians chapter 1. If you're going to abound in love in all knowledge and discernment, that knowledge and discernment is going to control and set the boundaries for the love. Now you think about that as the love you have for a child. You say, I love the child. That means I want to give them the best, so you give them everything they ever ask for. Well, then you're not using very much knowledge if you give them everything they ask for. It may be your knowledge and your wisdom says, I have to say no to some things with reference to that child. And so I'm going to set some boundaries because of love and wisdom with reference to how I love the child. Well, the same thing is true as we love our brethren, as we have love in direction toward, our, toward the world, that knowledge controls and sets the boundaries of that love. But I'm more interested at this juncture in this discernment. <clears throat> Notice he says that I pray that you may abound, your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment, in understanding. There's something about this discernment that comes from the knowledge, but is not equated exactly with the knowledge. That is, they're not one and the same. Talking about understanding. Well, the context is going to help us with that. Let's notice verse 9. <clears throat> I pray that your love may abound still more and more in all discernment that you may approve of things that are excellent. When you have discernment, you're able to approve of things that are excellent. What does it mean to approve of things that are excellent? If you have the King James translation, or you have the American Standard translation, that phrase, approve things that are excellent, you'll find a footnote that says, distinguish things that differ. 
That's not a contradiction between the two, but let's see from here from Barnes and we'll come back and harmonize those two. He said the margin here, talking about that marginal note, distinguish things that differ, more correctly expresses the sense of the Greek word. The idea is that he wished that they be able to distinguish between things that differ from each other to have an intelligent apprehension of what is right and wrong, of what is good and evil. That is, we need to learn how to distinguish things that are distinct and different in order to approve of that which is good, that which is excellent. I can't put my stamp of approval and endorse what's good if I don't know how to distinguish between good and bad. If I don't know how to distinguish between good and evil. Forget even whether good or bad or right or wrong. Let's just talk about good judgment versus bad judgment. If I can't distinguish between the two, then I cannot approve of good judgment because I don't know the difference between good judgment and bad judgment. And so Paul sees good in the future in these brethren. What's he wanting them to have? He wants them to be able to distinguish things that differ. Now what's interesting, that distinguishing. Barnes again makes this observation. The word used here denotes the kind of trial to which metals are exposed in order to test their nature. You may be like me, I work with wood, but I don't know much about metal. And so somebody says, well, this, what's this made of? It's made of metal. Well, what, what kind of metal is it? Is it good metal? Is it good I, I don't know much about the difference in the metals. I don't know. But you can put it to the test and distinguish between metals. Now listen to what Barnes said. The word used here is, is the word that's used to put metals through a trial to distinguish their nature. Is it aluminum or is it, is it metal sludge? Is it steel? Is it, what is it? What kind of metal is that? Is it pure? Pure gold? Or does it have impurities mixed in with that? So that we're learning to make distinction in things. Now let's see how that works. When we do not distinguish things that are entirely different from one another... Confusion is created when those lines are blurred. Now, this is just an illustration of some things that are different. For example, marriage and the bond are different, Romans 7. Faith and opinion are different. That one's one that you can easily recognize, faith and opinion. That here is a matter of faith because it's a revelation of God, but opinion is not based on the revelation of God. I can't find the revelation of it, but this is my opinion. Like Romans 14, for example. Or maybe sin and bad judgment. Here's something that's bad judgment, but it doesn't involve sin. There's a difference. The individual and the church are different. One who is weak spiritually and one who is unruly is different. 1 Thessalonians 5, 13 and 14. There's a difference in social things and spiritual things. There's a difference in continuing in sin and, uh, and uh, continuing in it or, or committing sin or continuing in it. I might commit sin, but that doesn't mean I'm continuing in that sin when I stop the sin. Now, let me illustrate the point. Let's go back to our text, and if you have the footnote, look at your footnote in the King James and in the American Standard. Distinguish things that differ. And as Barnes said, that's preferred. Not that it's contradictory, but when I learn to distinguish things that are different, then I can approve of what's good. Now, when the lines, see these are distinct, these are different. But let's just take that line, and we begin to blur that line until that line is not only practically, but it's completely gone. Where I talk about one and then I talk about the other without making a distinction, and I've blurred the, the lines of distinction so that now they become the same, 
in my mind or in other people's mind. Now we have confusion. Because now we don't know the difference in social and spiritual. We don't know the difference in the individual and the church or sin and bad judgment. When you did something that was bad judgment, I'm going to condemn you just as much as if you committed sin. Or maybe I will embrace you just like I did the person with bad judgment. And so we need to learn to distinguish things that are different. Now what's the result? In their future, he sees good in their future. I want you to abound in love, abound in knowledge, and abound in discernment. Yeah, I have all confidence you're going to do that. What's the result? Well, here's the first. You will then approve of things that are excellent. When you learn to distinguish things that differ, you're going to approve of things that are excellent. In other words, when we distinguish, we can distinguish clearly between right and wrong, then we'll be able to choose the right. When we're able to distinguish between good judgment and bad judgment, we can clearly choose good judgment. But let's go a step further. When we can learn to distinguish between uh, good judgment and better judgment, we'll be able to choose the better judgment. And so consequently, when we, when we abound in love and in knowledge and in discernment, the result is going to be we're able to approve of things that are excellent. That is, we stand on the side of what's right. Secondly, look at verse 10. That you may approve of things that are excellent, that you may be sincere. There's a question among commentators as to the meaning of that word sincere in this text. We talked about sincerity recently. Some suggest it's the idea of purity, that you may be pure. I want you to be able to approve of things that are excellent and as a result of growing in love and growing in knowledge and growing in, dis in discernment, you then will be pure in your life. <coughs> Others have suggested that it has to do with standing the test of light. That is, as you expose something to light and that puts it to the test so that everything is clear, clearly seen, and it, it stands the test of the light then therefore it is approved of God. Well, maybe it's a combination of both, as some have suggested. So the result of abounding in love and in knowledge and discernment is we're going to be pure and we'll stand the test of the light. Here's the third thing. That you may be, he said, without offense. In other words, blameless. It doesn't mean they never sin. We just talked about the distinction and committing sin and continuing therein. If we ask every person present and said, do you sin? Do you ever sin? And the answer would have to be yes, or we're, we're lying because 1 John 1 and verse 8 says we're liars if we say we have no sin. But if I ask the question, are you continuing to practice sin? That ought to be no, because that's not what we're supposed to be doing. That we may be blameless without offense. And then he says at verse 11, that you be filled with the fruits of righteousness. That is, good deeds, good attitudes that righteousness produces. This is more of a general expression. Some have suggested that it includes, and it would, the fruit of the Spirit that we just studied recently in three lessons from Galatians 5. That's a part of that. But it's broader than that, I think. That here is the fruit, here is the result, here's what comes from being righteous. Being righteous, you're going to have this kind of attitude. You're going to have this kind of language. You're going to have this kind of reaction. You're going to have this kind of fear. You're, whatever is the fruit of being righteous, that's going to come because you're abounding in love and in knowledge and in discernment. There's going to be the fruit of righteousness. 
You're going to see a change in fruit because now you're approving of things that are excellent. And then finally, verse 11, ultimately God is glorified. Being filled with the fruit of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. By the way, these fruits are, 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 are identified by Christ. That's what makes them fruit of righteousness. Not what I decide, but it's by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, should God be glorified and praised in our worship? He certainly should, but I don't think he's talking about worship here. I think he's talking about the manner of way in which we live is praise and honor and glory unto God. That is, when we are living in this manner, that is, we're bounding in love, we're bounding in knowledge, bounding in discernment, we're sincere, without offense, we're filled with the fruits of righteousness, God is glorified in that. God is honored in that kind of life. So God is glorified in the life of a godly and a faithful Christian. Seeing good in brethren. Paul looked at the church at Philippi and he saw good. He saw good in their past. And he saw good in their future. He was thankful for the past. He made requests for the future. Prayed to God that their future may be what he expected it to be. What he had seen in the past may it continue in the future. Seeing good in the past, seeing good in the future, he saw good in his brethren at Philippi. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism that you might obtain the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?